Welcome to Our Opinions Are Correct, a podcast about the meaning of science fiction and everything else. I'm Charlie Jean Anders. I'm the author of a new short story collection, Even Greater Mistakes, plus a young adult novel, Victories Greater Than Death, and a book about how to use writing to survive the worst stuff life can throw at you. Never say you can't survive. And I'm Annalee Newitz. I'm a science journalist who also writes science fiction. I'm the author of a new book about archaeology called Four Lost Cities, A Secret History of the Urban Age. So today we're going to be talking about whether the United States of America will continue to exist as a country 50 years from now and what that might look like and what kind of scenarios we could envision for a medium near future United States. And to help us do this, we're going to be joined by New York Times columnist Jamel Bowie, who's done a lot of thinking about these issues. And also on our audio extra next week, we'll be talking about which decade of post-apocalyptic movies was the most apocalyptic, the 1970s or the 1980s? And did you know that our patrons get audio extras with every single episode? Wow! Yeah, it's amazing, and some of them are actually really good. Plus, you get essays, reviews, and access to our Discord channel, where we just hang out and talk all the time about everything. It's true. It's all I'm amazing. I'm in there right now. I'm in there in my mind. It's all amazing, and it can be yours for just a few bucks a month. This podcast is entirely listener-supported, which means that we need you to help us to keep making our opinions more correct with every passing day. Find us at patreon.com slash our opinions are correct. Now let's jump into the future. So now we're joined by Jamel Bowie, a New York Times columnist and co-host of the new podcast, Unclear and Present Danger. Welcome, Jamil. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. So can you give us like a ballpark percentage of how likely is it that the United States will still exist as a country in 50 years? So I think it's worth starting by saying that more or less since the United States has existed, people have been predicting that it's going to break up. So in the immediate mm -hmm. sort of, you know, in the immediate 20 years after the ratification of the Constitution in 1788, you have real fears, right, that, you know, incipient partisanship, the development of political parties, uh, you know, intensely, you know, fierce uh, political rivalry at the turn of the century real fear that the whole thing is going to fall apart. Um, there was fear after, during the 1800 election, which was famously acrimonious, that there would be, that the country would collapse in the Civil War. And so you have these, you have these recurring fears throughout the, the first half of the 19th century over, usually over the sectional divide over slavery. And obviously, of course, we do come mm -hmm. to civil war um, in 1861. But the important point there is that the the sort of political and social and economic pressures that produced that took the better part right of a century to to fully take shape and produce the civil war, um, and are, are the kind of things that aren't necessarily necessarily replicable again, right? That the I think I think right. I think analogies to the civil war that you see you I've seen some 
over the last few years really do, I think, understate the, the sheer magnitude of the division that was created by slavery. So that's to say, I don't, I'm not surprised in the present that there is, again, conversation of fear about, however you want to frame it, of the U.S. coming apart. Um, and what I would say is that I myself am doubtful, right, that like nothing so far that we've experienced, for as traumatic as it may or may not be, is really that, like, it, not, not, nothing lacks an antecedent in the, the American past. And all of it is the kind of thing that the country's gotten through more or less in shape. So, you know, that doesn't mean there isn't a chance of the country fracturing, but I, it, for me at least, I have like a, I'm, I'm skeptical that it's going to happen. Smarter people um, uh, in the past have, um, smarter people than me certainly, have predicted that the U.S. is going to fall apart and that hasn't come to pass, so. So it's interesting that you say that people keep bringing up uh, the the parallel with the Civil War, um, which is also something that I've kind of fallen into myself. And I wonder if you think there's a better antecedent for us to be thinking about instead of kind of always going back to like, okay, we're on the brink of Civil War. What are some other periods of, of turmoil or um, fragmentation in U.S. history that provide us with a better analogy for thinking about what's happening now? So... So for my part, I think kind of the most useful analogy or sort of the most the two most useful periods are probably Reconstruction, eighteen sixty five to eighteen seventy seven or so, mm-hmm. and uh, and I, I'm about to revise that sort of not even really Reconstruction, but sort of like the decline of and then transition into Jim Crow. That's about eighteen seventy four to nineteen hundred, which is its own kind of period. And then also the 1920s, which were like an intensely fractitious period that bear a lot of similar that bears a lot of similarities to our own. Um, and I say those periods because they are characterized by extreme partisanship, extreme polarization of the political system. It's worth just for fun looking at the margins in presidential elections from that 19th century period, 1876, that election to. 1900, which you're looking at margins of usually no more than a percentage point in the popular vote, just intensely contested presidential elections and really high levels of partisanship. Much more, you know, turmoil in the country, labor unrest. Um, uh, This is the age of lynching, for example. So you have um, also that kind of endemic violence in the South. You have tons of political violence in the South in particular. You have efforts at restricting democracy, North and South, North um, targeted towards immigrants, South targeted towards Blacks, West targeted towards Chinese immigrants. And you have um, you have sort of like, you have to, the, the thing that's different, the thing that is different is there's still sort of a great deal of like regional distinction and regional variation. Um, these things, a lot of these things are still ongoing in the 20s. Um, they're just a bit more modern sounding to our ears. But the the interplay of kind of, of, of division, of partisanship, of violence, of kind of a, a wide spectrum of ideological views, um, all these things are sort of part of the, part of the uh, firmament in American life in these decades. And I think some familiarity with that might, might help us better understand what we're going through. But to kind of to to put a pin on that last point, the fact that we do have kind of a national political culture in a way that we never really have before does make things a little different, um, because it's it, it means that 
it sort of means that people can't uh, people can't retreat necessarily in the in after the Scopes Monkey Trial in in, in nineteen twenty is um, you know a big evolution trial. Fundamentalist Christians sort of like made a strategic retreat from American politics and could more or less do that. They could retreat to their communities without really having to engage the outside world. But nationalized politics, nationalized media, nationalized culture, that makes that thing kind of more difficult, which I think kind of adds to, um, for some groups, a sense of being besieged, right? You can't really escape anything you don't like. So what are you going to do about it? Yeah, well, that actually leads to the next question I was going to ask, which is, you know, I think it's interesting to talk about historical antecedents like the ones you mentioned. Do you think that there's any truth to the notion that we are living through an unprecedented time? And, that, you know, the thing you mentioned about how politics has become nationalized, when I was a kid, I certainly heard often this maxim that all politics is local. And I know that, you know, in your home state, uh, Danica Rome, somebody that I've been supporting a lot, you know, keeps winning re-election to the House of Delegates just by being like Route 89 or whatever it is, has doesn't have enough traffic lights and we're going to, this is like the issue that I'm going to focus on. But, you know, it does feel like politics have changed in the era of social media and cable news and all these other things to the point where people are much more concerned about national issues and much less concerned about like local disputes. And, you know, I'm wondering if that makes it difficult to reach into history to, to look at, to, you know, our future. No, I think that's a really fair point. And you can kind of go down the list of things that make the present distinctive. It's not just sort of like our nationalized kind of political and media and cultural environment, but also sort of like, you know, there's no local media doesn't really exist in the same way anymore. People's sort of like affective connections seem to be less towards things in their community and more towards sort of like more broader and national kind of like imagined communities. There's a lot of there's mm-hmm. there's a there's a loss of locality in American life, just like in general, that I think um, is a very powerful force, and I I don't think we've really ever seen before, and so that that is distinctive, I think. The yeah, it's like it's like the it's 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 funny the extremely strong feelings uh, people have about uh, many things. Some of those strong feelings, very justified, um, are not you know novel, right? Like that's not a new thing. It's just sort of like the context in which those strong feelings are happening is a new thing. And I suppose the question is whether we have any institutions or anything that can somehow channel that stuff into something more constructive than just, you know, an incohate anger and rage ready to be harnessed by someone. Yeah. So actually getting back to the Constitution, I feel like, I mean, I talk to my mom a lot. She's a historian. And I just, what you know, I'm always saying to her, I feel like the Constitution is just, like, broken, that it's, like, that it's unworkable because of the compromises that were baked into it. And what my mom always says is kind of what you said, which is that back then people were worried that the different colonies could become client states of European powers if they weren't harnessed into something unified. And so whatever was needed to do that was what people were willing to do. But, you know, I mean, part of why I'm a little pessimistic about the future of the United States is because I feel like our Constitution has so many weird kludges, like the Electoral College, like the Senate, and just a bunch of other things that that make it kind of like a millstone around our necks. And do you think that there's any way to cope with that, or do you think that we're just stuck with it? I, I'm sort of of two minds of this. Uh, and the first, I, I myself am sort of very pessimistic about the ability of making any kind of root and branch constitutional change. Like the Constitution is, for all intents and purposes, unamendable. Even you know, the most significant amendment over the last you know 
50 years is probably the, the 22nd, which um, raised the vote, lowered the voting age to 18. You can maybe make a case that sort of presidential term limits is a, is a very consequential one, but that's I, that's very debatable. I think that lowering the voting age is, is more clearly the, the very consequential one. Um, but the, the the thing about that, right, is that you lower the lowering the voting age isn't necessarily an issue of like intense partisan contestation, right? It's just it's kind of like, you know, people at the time were like, well, these kids are going to fight and die. That's not, and they can't vote. That's mm-hmm. not cool. So we should let them vote. Um, if you're thinking of any kind of like serious structural reform of American government, say, you know, a popular election of the presidency, president outright. Um, uh, reconfiguring how the Senate operates, right? All these, all these, all these tweaks. It's hard to imagine them ever happening, given um, given their att- how they're attached to kind of different partisan partisan beliefs about who's going to advantage and who's not going to advantage. On the flip side, though, you know, the Constitution is a funny document in that, in some sense, it sets up a pretty kind of like rigid structure, but in another sense, it's actually remarkably flexible. And so if a political consensus were to develop around certain things, like you wouldn't necessarily have to amend the Constitution to make those changes. Like you can, the Constitution itself is a kludge, but you can kind of kludge your way out of things as well. Um, <laughs> and so I often wonder, like for, for, for my part, my my kind of analysis here is that you know the the ideological polarization, geographical polarization, you know these things have sorted the the two political parties into one being you know pretty liberal almost uniformly, the other pretty conservative uniformly, and that um, you can more or less predict where someone's going to fall in the two party system based off of you know where they live. And like what race they are, it's like it's you, those two variables, and you've kind of like figured it out. And to me, what that does is it introduces a level of uh, uh, pre- predictability that is actually really harmful to democratic politics because it always you're, there's always the possibility on any, in any given election, and a mostly even divided evenly divided country that you can win and you can win it all. So why would you compromise? Why would you? Why would you moderate anything? And this is more for Republicans than, than Democrats. I think that I think Democrats having a very diverse coalition kind of cuts against this somewhat. But for Republicans, it's sort of like, well, we we might be able to win everything without even really winning most of the votes. So why would we even compromise? Right. And so what what needs to be introduced in back into the system is a level of unpredictability. Um, if I'm going to channel James Madison here, who you know thought that in a large republic you would need factions meeting factions, ambition meeting ambition, to be able to have to be able to channel things into something constructive, I think we need. I think I think that what the country needs is something like a multi-party system to introduce a level of unpredictability into election outcomes. And that's something you could achieve without really having to change the constitution. It's you can mainly just operate by law. And it's like, I don't is do I think that's terribly likely in you know the next 50 years? Probably not. But do I think it's a uh, do I think it is a do I think it's something that you can build support for? Do I think it's something that, that there's a, a politics you can um, create around it to maybe get to that outcome? I do. And um, you know. Enough of those kind of like adjustments, 
adjustments, adjusting our, our political institutions to sort of the kind of society we have now. Enough of those accumulate, and you have something a bit more workable. And I want to be clear here, workable for me doesn't mean that, right, like my preferred policy outcomes happen as much as I would like that to be the case. Workable for me means that the country can govern itself, that it can govern itself in a way that doesn't sort of like exacerbate kind of the worst forces within the country, um, and that it can govern itself in a way that makes most people feel like okay about, you know, our institutions. Not great. Americans have never really felt great about our institutions. It makes most people feel like fine rather than, you know, hopeless. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the future of the United States. So we were just talking about how the United States is kind of suffering from two weirdly contradictory problems. One is that we're in a state where local political culture is kind of evaporating. And we have this new kind of sense of national politics that that kind of takes everyone up into the same issues. Um, At the same time, we're seeing, you know, a kind of fragmentation and we're seeing, you know, local issues and local interests kind of taking over in some cases. We're seeing this kind of minority uh, rule in, in many regions of the country. And so, I'm wondering if we look to the future in a kind of science fictional vein, we're casting our eyes forward into the next 50 years, if you could think a little bit or talk a little bit about how you imagine some of the stuff that you were just talking about coming to pass, like if we were to head toward a system with multiple parties, whether that's toward a parliamentary system or something else, what does that look like? Like how do you, again, in a kind of science fictional mode, how do you imagine that developing? So in, in terms of kind of like I, I there there's like particular right policy things you would do, right? You you'd have, you know, um multiple member districts for the House, you would have uh you know some form of runoff voting or ranked choice voting or something like et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um all that stuff is easy to imagine. You would for the Senate, things wouldn't be too different. Maybe you could find some maybe you could sort of like by law create like at large senators, right, for the for the country. I mean, there's all sorts of like little things you could do. But in terms of sort of like what would what what are the events or what are the processes that would get us from point A to point B? Mm-hmm. I mean, historically in the US, like one of two things has to happen. Either you have some sort of like big social revolution of some sort that kind of like pr- pr- puts so much pressure on the political system that it's forced to change. So that's like your civil rights movement. That's kind of like the the, the era of mass immigration at the beginning of the 20th century. That's, you know, the rapid territorial expansion of the United States in the the 19th century, all that stuff. Or you have a war, uh, a big conflict that that provides some of the energy itself. I don't, you know, I, I, I'm, I feel like I'm, I hope, I hope I will be alive for the next 50 years. I would rather not experience any wars, any significant ones um, during that period. (laughs) So my hope is that you know, basically something, you know, we, we have one of our recurring social revolutions. We have one of our, one of our recurring movements towards 
you know, more and greater political equality. And it's probably going to be in reaction to some kind of domestic unrest, domestic disturbance, some sort of long-term or, or at least like medium-term um, phenomena that kind of leads the country to, to reorient itself. Uh, there's a great book by a uh, political scientist named Lee Drutman called The Two-Party uh, Doom Loop, which is about kind of the the inherent problems in the hmm. two-party system. Um, and he imagines basically a sort of like the United States coming dangerously close to military dictatorship <laughs> um, as a result of internal unrest and then kind of reorienting itself. Mm. Um, I, I, I feel like... That does sound fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was just starting to feel really optimistic there. And then <laughs> he brought it back to the doom loop. So so I should say, like, I... I I don't know if I'm optimistic or not. I'm, I'm really, I have no sense of whether of whether that would accurately describe me. But I will say that I do not underestimate the kind of, um, the kind of like connection, faith, belief, whatever people have in just the idea of the American Union. That is a deceptively powerful idea. And that to me makes me think that the country will figure something out. I don't know what that thing is, but I, I actually think that for as much as you do have people who are like, oh, we should let them all go, we should split up, There's, I think there's a deep emotional connection to the idea of the United States. Yeah, I think that's true. And I wanted to to follow up um, and, and ask you another, I think this is a bit of a science fictional question too, which is, if we were to have more political parties in in this future, like say we have a kind of crackdown of some kind and then we get a social movement that emerges out of it and we we get more political parties, what are what are some political parties that you could imagine emerging? like what what comes after uh, Democrat versus Republican? As long as we don't bring back the Whigs or the Tories, I'm totally <laughs> cool with that. I, I think the Whigs had a cool name. But I anyway. know. Yeah. No, that's true. It was a it was a good name. Not as good as No Nothing, I guess. But you know, Bull Moose. Bring back the Bull Moose party. Yeah. I'm actually I'm 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 in favor of the the Citron party from Canada. But <laughs> anyway, um, but yes, tell us future political parties. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Please. one way you could think of it is you could kind of just could be existing, you know, two parties and kind of break them up in their constituent parts. And so if you broke up the Republican Party. You would have like a center-right business party, right? Sort of, you know, your your Mitt Romney's, your your George Bush's kind of stayed down the line. You would have a MAGA party, like a, a xenophobic, really reactionary, you know, nationalist party. You would have a social conservative party um, uh, that's sort of more traditionally, you know, yeah, you'd have a, a just straight-up social conservative party. Uh, and then on the left, you would have kind of a counterpart to the center-right business party, kind of a more center-left, you know, Bill Clinton, Cl Clintonite, hmm. even, you mm -hmm. know, if, even Obama-esque center-left party. You would have, I think, something like a Green Party. And you would have um, as well like a, a Labor Party, like a, like a, a uh, yeah, a Labor Party that might be a little more social conservative. Um I think I think that's like your basic breakdown, but of course, depending on how you structure a multi-party system, you could it could be one where you really do just have four or five or six parties that that emerge, or you can have one where there's a bajillion different little parties and they all kind of do their own thing. 
Uh, my my hunch, my mm-hmm. sense is that if we ever move to a multi-party system, we'd be more on the former part of things. There'd still be, you know, four or five or six kind of major parties that contend and contest with each other, um, and not so much a huge proliferation of parties. But that's that's how I imagine it. Kind of, um, um, you know, some basically some some smaller version of the existing Republican and Democratic parties, and then kind of, you know, Green Party, Nationalist Party. Labor Party, you know, social conservative party. Yeah, so continuing on the sort of science fictional vein, I I write some books and stories sometimes that take place in kind of the future of the United States. And one of the things I always kind of bump up against or one of the things I always kind of struggle with is trying to predict how current trends like climate change and corporate consolidation with mixed in with ubiquitous surveillance, um, how those things kind of put stresses on the American political system and and potentially cause it to break. And like, you know, how do you, how do those things factor into your kind of a, your vision of the future of the United States? I always like to stress unpredictability. So mm-hmm. the, like climate change, for example, I'm not really sure how climate change is going to going to influence American politics. I don't think it's going to influence American politics in ways that we can sort of reliably predict. It, there is going to be an influence. It is going to be a shock. It is going to change things. But what those things are and how they change are are I think a little bit up in the air. Some things I can imagine, right? Like I, I can imagine a world of climate disaster and climate refugees really um, mm-hmm. bringing a more more reactionary turn in American politics as people want to keep people out of the country. I could imagine climate crisis within the United States. You know, this is a big, big country. I can imagine climate crisis within the borders of the United States really transforming American politics in pretty profound ways. I, I, I had, you know, recently I had a conversation with some students, um, some students of religion about sort of the future of American religion. And I wouldn't be surprised if endemic climate crisis causes some sort of revitalization of religious belief in the country. It wouldn't be the first time that the United States went through a great awakening. And I feel like we're probably due for one in the next half century. So that would be one catalyst for it. And then who would, who knows how that would influence things? I've only, I've, I'm 34. If we you know start from when I graduated college, my adult life has uh, included lots of things that seem highly unlikely. If you were trying to, to try to explain to them, explain them to me beforehand, right? If you tried to explain to me in two thousand nine that the president in seven years, eight years would be Donald Trump, that that would sound ridiculous. Um, and it, I'd have a hard it still yeah, <laughs> and I'd have a hard time imagining the path from like here to there. Um, and and that's all to say that. There, there are going to be events. There are going to be occurrences that we simply cannot anticipate, um, and that are going to shape things in profound ways. And the, I feel like the best I can do, the best I, most I can say, is that we should not, we should neither discount the the the, the odds of some sort of fundamental break happening with the past because of events. But we we can't also just. I mean, it's also fair to wonder if we are gonna, you know, things are gonna happen along a pretty linear path. I doubt that they will, but that's always a possibility too. Um, the same goes with technology, right? Sort of maybe maybe we're on, you know, maybe if we, if you imagine a linear path, it's like thirty years from now we just live in sort of like an all pervasive surveillance state, like private surveillance surveillance state, but. 
who knows who knows what might happen in 20 years maybe there's a huge backlash right maybe there's a you know there's a mini you know butlerian jihad against <laughs> surveillance technology <laughs> and um, uh, all those anti-algorithm bills right, you know, right. They, they could get together themselves and achieve sentience and then they would fight anyway never mind. <laughs> Um, so I'm, yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's hard for me to, to predict. I, I often feel like, I often feel like everyday life for most people will probably be roughly kind of the same. Um, and it's only when you try to take a big, big systemic picture that things will look very different. Yeah. So final question, you obviously spend a lot of time thinking about pop culture and you have a new podcast about sort of 90s action movie political thrillers. You know, are there any movies or TV shows or books that you feel like depict the future of the United States either accurately or in a way that like is useful? In a way that's useful? Because I'm not sure, you know, accurately is like tough, right? Like I don't, I don't know what, what, yeah, I mean, obviously. Yeah, we're not wizards. We can't actually. I mean, the I future. am, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to not bring that into. <laughs> I mean, I'll say. I'll, yeah, don't, don't lean into that. I'll say one movie I recently rewatched, and recently meaning like in the last year or so, was Minority Report, and being very, very impressed on how much that movie gets right about sort of the next ten or fifteen years of of technology, at least of, of um, sort of its sense of what where things are headed. So I would toss that in there. I, you know, uh, movies I love for their depiction of the future are just the Star Trek movies because they're such an optimistic mm-hmm. and humanist vision of yeah. of the future, of sort of humanity at its best. I feel like so many cinematic depictions of the future are essentially dystopian. And Star Trek is sort of a rare example of a cinematic depiction of the future in which there are still problems and challenges. There's still drama. But we've been able to at least resolve some of the the biggest, you know, material issues that we face as as human beings. Cool. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you online? So you can find me at the New York Times. Um, I'm just I'm one of the columnists. I'm right there. I'm on Twitter as at jbui. I'm on Instagram as well as at jbui. And then um, yeah, I have my my new podcast with my friend John Gans. We're watching um, 90s kind of post-Cold War thrillers and talking about their politics, trying to historicize that decade a little bit as it recedes farther um, farther into, into the rearview mirror. I'm going to put on some flannel shirts and, and give it a listen. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thanks great, for being here. Have a great rest of your evening. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. We're going to take another short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about my brand new short story collection. All right, Charlie Jane, I know that we've all been waiting for this moment. Your first big short story collection, it's called Even Greater Mistakes. And to start off, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you picked the stories for the collection? Yeah, um, that's a wonderful question. So, you know, yes, I, it is. <laughs> I, you know, I've written a lot of short stories in my so-called career, like I think a couple hundred, probably more at this point. I've written a ton of short stories, many of which nobody has ever read, thank goodness. But there were a bunch that people have read, and I really tried to pick stories that, you know, fulfilled two criteria. One, they still made me feel something when I looked back at them. Like I still kind of felt like the characters were like compelling, the 
there was something emotionally potent in the story that at least spoke to me and that, you know, I felt like it still held up in some way. And it wasn't just like a fun thought experiment that was just like, oh, that was fun. Now let's move on to the next thing. The other criterion was that I wanted to, the stories collection to be as varied as possible because I'm like, it's 19 stories by me. And if it's 19 stories that are all kind of the same thing, that's going to get really old. And I really wanted to kind of showcase like, okay, I've got some stories that are really silly and funny and kind of gonzo and just like, you know, clown pants. And then I've got other stories that are <laughs> actually kind of more serious and introspective and, you know, kind of weighty and, and you know, in some cases, actually a little bit like upsetting and dystopian. And there's one story in particular that 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 refers to. But I just wanted it to feel like kind of a chocolate box where you get like a different bunch of different flavors. And like one of them is mouse turd. Like that's the <laughs> the dystopian I mean, flavor. I hope that <laughs> what the is the flavor of dystopia? I think that the flavor of dystopia is is maple syrup maybe because what? just because no. after when you're living in a dystopia, you can't necessarily get sugar, but you can still go and like make your own maple syrup by like tapping the trees. I don't think that the dystopian story is like <laughs> a mouse turd. I think it's like it's a really I actually still think it's a really beautiful story. It's just very upsetting and very kind of dark and scary. Yeah, I didn't mean mouse turd like the story is shitty. I just meant that like, you know, the <laughs> box of chocolates is like, and then you get to this the dystopian chocolate and like what is in there, I you feel know? like the dystopian, well, for you, the I dystopian really chocolate would be not, white chocolate. It would actually, white chocolate is a, a sign of dystopia. Like you would be like, okay, white chocolate, that is that is the dystopian story. It, it's, yeah. So that that's my box of chocolates. Like I'll just give marzipan. you all, yeah. Like, White chocolate with marzipan inside. White chocolate with marzipan inside and then, like, um, really dried out, like, coconut flakes somehow integrated into it as well. See, I love all I'm of this. I'm not anti-coconut. I would eat that, I would I just, eat that like, chocolate in a second. The really dried out, awful coconut flakes. You know, I love really... marzipan. I love white chocolate. Well, I like, I like maple syrup, flakes. and I don't think it's dystopian. I just am saying I, I in dystopia. I consider maple syrup to be, like, a, the kind of centrist of— <laughs> Sweet flavors. I, I don't know if there's like a centrism here, like between goofy fun and like dystopia. Huh. So but like the, whatever it is, it's in the middle, middle of the road. Yeah, it's middle of the road the because middle it's, of the road. it's, you know, I, I just, yeah. All right. So I think we've established what the chocolate box is. I'm wondering, <laughs> um, why don't you just uh, give us an example, though, of like when I open this chocolate box, like what's one of the really funny stories that you included and what's one of the white chocolate stories that you included? Okay. I mean, so. You know, one of the really funny stories that I feel like nobody has read. It was published online, but I feel like it just slid way under the radar. But there's this story called uh, Vampire Zombie versus Fairy Werewolf. Amazing and title. I mean, I feel like that title, you know, I would want to read that story. It's about <laughs> it's about a vampire who's also a zombie. And, you know, it ends with the, him getting into a fight with a fairy who's also a werewolf. And so the title is very descriptive of what the story mm -hmm. is. It's it's one of my most kind of accurately descriptive titles. And it's just it's just pure ridiculous silliness. At one point, one of the characters has a plus one Vorpal shotgun. And there's like a karaoke battle. There's like a lot of disses against the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm -hmm. It's just, it's a very kind of like goofy, wacky story that's kind of like based on my love of Vampire Diaries but like taken to a very ridiculous place. And then a kind of more, you know, I don't know, intense, sad story. Like I'm just going to um, pick Ratcatcher's Yellows, which I think did get a fair a bit of attention, but it's a story about um, 
a woman whose partner has early dementia due to this kind of disease that is kind of a cousin of syphilis and um, Lyme disease. And the only thing that helps this person with dementia is playing this weird video game where they have where where she wears a cat head mask and like governs a kingdom full of cats. And it's kind of a cute story, but it's very sad and very upsetting. And it definitely was like me thinking about my father's dementia and the other people in my life who've had dementia, but I kind of changed it into a different sort of relationship story. And um it's it's very it's a very sad story. But I think it, you know, because it's got cute cats and like other stuff. It's not like, I think that it'll be like fun to read, even though it's also like, oof. You yeah. Know? I wouldn't actually call that a white chocolate story. I, okay. I think, yeah. That, I that's... mean, the most white chocolate story is obviously like Don't Press Charges and I Won't Sue, which is like the kind of super dystopian, upsetting, like, what if, you know, the transphobic, you know, jerkwads who are like currently jerking up the place. What if they get their way? And it's sort of an exaggerated version of that. And it's it's a very scary, upsetting story that, you know. Yeah, it's like a turf, of, turf dystopia, basically. It is yeah. literally it's a turf a dystopia. Very intense yeah. story. Um, it's such a great range of stories in here. And I know um, that when you were putting this book together, you actually revised a lot of these stories. Um, so they're slightly different in some cases from what people read initially if they read them uh, online or in the publication. So how did you – what was that like going back and doing that? Some of these stories are several years old now. Yeah, I mean, it was really a thing where, like, the older the story, I, the more I had to kind of work on it and the more I had to kind of, like, beat it up and kind of smack it around a little bit. And, you know, there are stories from, like, 15 years ago where I really had to go back and just kind of, like, punch up the characters, make the characters a little bit more kind of – like have just like a little bit more complexity to the characters and a little bit more emotional center of the characters. And then for stories that were more recent, it was mostly just a matter of like going through streamlining a little bit, taking out like, you know, even stuff that I wrote a few years ago, there's there's language that I don't use in my fiction as much anymore. Like I'm really trying to get rid of ableist language in my fiction. And mm -hmm. that's a struggle because there's it's so really many important. common phrases and words that we all use all the time that are actually really ableist. So I've been trying really hard to kind of root those out of my fiction. And, you know, even at the copy editing and kind of proofreading stage, I would still be like, oh, okay, I caught another one. Gosh. It was it was like a process that was kind of never-ending, and I'm sure I still missed some stuff. But there was that, and, like, mostly it was just, like, yeah, making sure that, sure that the stories kind of were felt like they were of a uniform standard and that they flowed well and stuff. And, you know, I felt like there was a very clear progression where, like, I got technically a little bit better at certain aspects of story writing after about, like, 10 years ago. And so the stories prior to that, I really had to just kind of go in and tweak them a little bit more. Yeah, it's so interesting. We're definitely going to do an episode coming up about writing short stories. Yeah. So we're not going to delve too much into process right now. But um, to finish up, I just wanted to ask, I know you said that you worked really hard to have this diverse box of chocolates. I'm just going to keep going to this horrible box of chocolates yeah, no, metaphor. Yeah, do it. Um, let's gump it up. I'm, yes. God. Let's gump it up. Gump is the worst chocolate. Okay, Ugh. that is whatever the flavor of gump. It's like a it's like a fried shrimp inside of a white chocolate oh, shell. Man. Anyway, so I wanted to ask if you actually did find some themes that surprised you where you were like, oh, I guess I've been obsessing about this for 20 years. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, themes that obsess me, like things that jumped out at me in these stories, like, and some of it's 
selection bias, some of his, the stories that I chose. But I think it's these are themes that I obsess about a lot. A big one that, you know, powers a lot of my stories is just the thing of knowing that bad things are going to happen, but not knowing what or when or how. And like, you know, and like, that's what I'm like. I have that one story, six months, three days about like these two people who can see the future in different ways. And that really ends up being about like how both of them kind of know that some really bad stuff is going to happen to them. And in one case, the one character is like, I know exactly what the bad things that are going to happen are. I know exactly when and how they're going to happen. And the other person is like, I really don't. Like, there's many different ways that things could play out for me um, because they have different views of the future. But I feel like a bunch of my stories, one way or the other, are about kind of like reckoning with the fact that like the one thing we can know as human beings is that we're going to suffer. We're going to lose things that are like really important to us. And there's nothing that we can do to prevent it. We can't even predict it, really. We just know that it's going to happen. Like, you know, you you could get hit by a bus tomorrow or you could never get hit by a bus, but, you know, things things will happen and you can't know. And so that is a thing that a bunch of these stories are wrestling with in different ways. And it is a thing that I kind of low-key obsess about all the time because it is, you know, it's genuinely upsetting to not know like to not be able to see, and probably it was better well, to because, know and not know. Because right. what you're saying is like you definitely know that something bad is going to happen, but what it's going to be, you know, it's kind of like what we were talking to Jamel about. Yeah. You know, it's like well, we know that something dark is going to happen to the United States. Mm -hmm. What will it be? How will we respond? We don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, we we did an episode recently about 9/11, and it was like, you know, there were we could, certainly could have said, oh, there's going to be some kind of, you know, something, there will be some kind of incident that's going to be really, you know, destructive and terrible, but we don't know when and how. And But nobody really saw that coming. Nobody really expected it. And it just, every, everything was changed afterwards. Everything was, like, different, and we had a different frame of reference. So that's the thing that I obsess about. A lot of the stories are about, like, people kind of finding human connection and finding each other and finding, you know, finding love between two people, but also finding love with a community in the midst of, like, terrible things. And, like, I think that that's what really powers the the, the hopeful side of these, these stories. I feel like it is a very hopeful collection. I think even the darkest stories in it are full of hope and full of the notion that we can connect with other people, we can hold on to ourselves, and we can hold on to our communities even when things get really bad. And I think that that's, like, where I draw a lot of my hope from is just that sense of, like, us coming together in relationships, but also in big community groups. And like, that is where we get, that's where we get our ability to survive. And, you know, there's one story in the book where you really kind of influenced it a lot, where it's like, it's a story that takes place in a future San Francisco that's underwater. Like San Francisco has been flooded. It's now a chain of islands. It's an archipelago. And I remember I was working on it. I even say this in the introduction to that story. I was like, I was working on this story, and I was like, well, I really want to write this story about a, an underwater San Francisco or a, a drowned San Francisco. But I, I'm, I'm really sick of like, you know, kind of dark post-apocalyptic stories. And you were like, why does it have to be dark or post-apocalyptic? Why can't it be hopeful about people rebuilding? And I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And like, it ended up being about this lovely kind of like queer kind of intentional community 
on Bernal Island, which is now Bernal Heights. Um, and, you know, it's actually a very kind of, it's got some, some, some bad things happen for sure, but it's a very hopeful, joyful, sweet story. Yeah. I love Bernal Island. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, too. that's very on brand for us. I feel like, you know, there's always that moment where I'm like, but what about when we rebuild? I mean, <laughs> you know, I like to think about that because I, I think I also, yeah, see the darkness too clearly. And so I'm like, let's get to the, to the yummy chocolate. What's the okay? Final question. Final final question. What is the flavor of the best candy in the box? The the I happiest. Mean, the happiest candy. The most zany happy candy in the I box. I mean, I'm gosh. Like, I mean, is it dark chocolate or milk chocolate? I think Come it's milk clean. chocolate. I think it's milk chocolate. Thank you. Like, I think it's milk Thank chocolate you. with like maybe salt. with salt. Okay, salt. It's salted milk chocolate. I don't know. I don't know if, um, if you're allowed to do that. Are you allowed to salt milk chocolate? I don't or know. You have to only dark chocolate. I, okay, listeners, let us know. Is the best chocolate salted milk chocolate or salted dark chocolate or no salt? I mean, I really like milk chocolate like around some kind of nut. Me too. Like I just got or milk- honeycomb. What about around a honeycomb? Milk chocolate honeycomb. Yeah, that's amazing. Okay. All right. Well, we figured it all out. We have. I'm so excited for everybody to read your collection of short stories. Even greater mistakes. It's, it's out so, now. So good. It's out wherever books are. You know, booking. Awesome. This has been Our Opinions Are Correct. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us wherever podcasts are found. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please, please leave a review. It helps a lot. And don't forget, you can find us on Patreon, where we would really appreciate your support, and that's patreon.com slash ouropinionsarecorrect. We're also on Twitter at OOACpod. Thank you so much to our incredible, brilliant audio producer, Veronica Simonetti. Thanks so much to our studio space, Women's Audio Mission, and thanks to Chris Palmer for the music. And if you're a patron, we'll see you on Discord. Everybody else, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye! Bye!